According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning once again in Ephesians chapter 2. This is now our third shot, looking at verses 11 through 22, the second half of this chapter. Appreciate your making it out this morning. We do, uh, you know, things are different since we started streaming. And uh, we're we're, we're kind of slaves now to the to the stream. And once it goes live, and once I get that second thumb from the desk, you know we gotta we gotta go. And that's uh, that's the way it it works. And so, back in the old days, we could be a little more gracious with folks that were fellowshipping before the the start of the hour. But got to be a little more abrupt with it here this morning. Ephesians two eleven. Remember, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by those called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, you were at that time, or at one time, once upon a time, you were separate from Christ, excluded uh, or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the estate of the Gentiles prior to the church age. And we're going to get back to these issues here again this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and his faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together on this day. Thank you for the living and abiding word of God, Father, the, the light to our path, and, and how lost would we be without it. So, Father, we give you the praise and glory. Thank you for this hour, rejoicing in the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and calling upon his faithfulness once again to teach us all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Right, when you talk about the deep things of God, I hope Ephesians comes to the first, <laughs> the first thing you think about, because this is an amazing book with some incredible doctrine, as we've seen already from chapter 1 and now half of chapter 2, the depths of Scripture that are contained here in the book of Ephesians. I've titled this paragraph, You Were Separate and Excluded, But Christ. And that's a, a direct contrast to what I titled the first paragraph that we had uh, for the first 10 verses of this chapter, which is, you were dead, but God. And so, in both paragraphs, we have a contrast that's being drawn with a then and now in a juxtaposition with one another, then and now. And what I'm trying to stress, and, and I'm going to pound it as many times as I can until everybody's sick of hearing it, that the then and now contrast of the first 10 verses is not the same contrast as the then and now contrast in the uh, verses 11 through 22 that although it uses the same structure it uses the same uh, logic and that is looking back to the day and then looking to the present uh, that they are evaluating different realms altogether and I hope we're going to be clear on that that when we're looking at verses uh, 1 through 10 the you were dead in your trespasses and sins that was that was the then is being contrasted now with being saved being born again being made alive and, and these are wonderful verses for giving the gospel. These are wonderful verses for describing what, uh, what goes on when you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, that you're made alive, you're raised up, you're seated together with Christ. All these things by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And so obviously that's the contrast. You used to be unbelievers. You were dead, but God made you alive in Christ. And so that's, uh, that's the contrast there. Also, I want to highlight that the you, I didn't discuss this the other day, the you is very simple, very short, very, as not expanded. It's not describing you collectively as an estate the way it is in verse 11. I'm going to highlight that as well. You, and it's a general you, and it applies to everybody. It applies to every born-again believer. I could say the same thing here today. For every born-again believer sitting here today, I can say you used to be an unbeliever. And it would be true that every last one of us was born in our transgressions, our trespasses and our sins. And so that's the contrast there. Now as we get to the second section, you were separate and excluded, but Christ. You were separate and excluded, but Christ. And more than, I might even expand this even more, because it's more than separate and excluded. 
It's uh, separate right there in verse 12. Excluded. Also in verse 12. Strangers. <coughs> okay. And then having no hope, we might say hopeless and, and godless without God in this world. So really, instead of you were separate and excluded, we should say you were separate, excluded, alienated, uh, hopeless, and godless. How about that? All right? And that's, uh, that's a different contrast than simply you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Also, look at how expanded the you is. Remember that formerly you, and then it defines who he's talking about with the you, the Gentiles in the flesh. He didn't put that description in, in verse 1. That wasn't a, a description in verses 1 through 10 because the issue on salvation is, is not unique to Gentiles. The issue on salvation is true for all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, that you're dead in your trans, uh, trespasses and sins and you need to be made alive by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So this you, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those calling themselves circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, it's also an imperative. We didn't have that in verses 1 through 10, but this is an imperative. We must remember. We must be mindful. We must never lose track of the dispensational uh, adjustments that took place with the, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the foundation of the church age. So we're going to be clear as we work our way through this that we're dealing with a dispensational contrast, not a salvific or a salvational contrast. Okay? And that's going to come up as well. So, remember the Bible's on the right, my notes are on the left, don't confuse those. Therefore, remember, we have an essay here, this wonderful essay on salvation in Christ that we finished in verse 10. It is now followed by a different contrast. A different contrast. And, and I stress this because far too many commentaries and far too many approaches to these verses just view it as a rehash. That this is, this is what you were as unbelievers, this is what you are now as believers, and, and that's, that's missing the mark. It's missing the point of what this contrast is about. This different contrast now is the Jew-Gentile contrast. The Jew-Gentile contrast of what used to be a Jew-Gentile contrast, a Jew-Gentile barrier, a Jew-Gentile enmity, okay, and all of that now being set aside in Christ. The fact that now the, the enmity is gone. Now the barrier has been removed. Now even the very, uh, the very essence of Jewishness and the essence of Gentileness is done away with because now there is a new creation in Christ, a new man that has been created with the establishment of the body of Christ. And so this is the new development in verses 11 through 22. It is not a repeat of 1 through 10. It is a much deeper doctrine and one that we must never lose sight of. The command to remember is a present active imperative, and so it is continuous all day, every day. Keep on remembering. Keep on being mindful. Don't ever lose the sense of how unique our current dispensation actually is. There has never been anything like the church age in the history of the world, and, and there won't be once the church is complete, moving forward to the tribulation and the millennium and beyond. All right? I made sure I had my chart ready to go this morning that we are here in the church age and we're being commanded to be mindful of this reality, of this blessed reality in which Jew and Gentile together are, are put into one new man, one new creation. And how unique is this? And we shouldn't be surprised, by the way, we shouldn't be surprised that this concept or that this uh, realm is being addressed in the New Testament because they're dealing with it in the, in the first generation of the church. They're dealing with it with brand new believers that, that were never saved before Pentecost, but also they're dealing with the crossovers. Remember the crossovers? They still have people that they're encountering that were saved before the church age started. And they're encountering, church, they're encountering Old Testament believers who need to cross over into the church age. So, let's just uh, keep in mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one side trip this morning in uh, Acts 19. I'll show you what I'm talking about there. All right. 
and in particular show you where Acts 19 sits right in front of Acts 20, but why is that significant related to the, the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and the context for the writing of the book of Ephesians? I think that's vital as well. So we, we, we put ourselves on this chart, and as we put ourselves on this chart, I, I'd like to kind of plot a little red dot like maybe right here, okay, within, maybe within a few hours of the rapture, <laughs> okay? I want to say that we are so close to the end of the church age, and, and that's great, Okay, because we're now some 2,000 years down the road from, uh, from uh, Calvary. But when Ephesians was written, I said this the other night, and, and I saw some jaws drop, so I'm going to say it again. <clears throat> when Ephesians was written, and I do hold to an early date with, with uh, the Ephesian imprisonment for the prison epistles, but regardless, you can, you can go to 62 A.D., that's fine. I hold to 56 A.D., um, but the difference is only a six-year difference. It's not that bad. So the, um, realize, as Paul is writing this, and he's telling them to remember how things used to be for the Gentiles, okay, that the church itself is only 23 years old. 23 years old. And then ask yourself this, because 23 years prior to today was 2001 A.D. How, how hard is that to remember 2001? Do you remember 2001? Remember what you were doing in 2001? Okay. Well, okay. If you're, older than, if you're older than some of the folks in this room, okay. <clears throat> Unless you were born in the year 2000. All right. Most of us... So here's the thing. Uh, and, and even if you add six more years to that, and you go back to 1995... And, and part of me kind of wants to because I like the math of 1995, but I still hold to the Ephesian origin of the prison epistles, and so uh, I think 56 AD is a better date. Uh, in any event, going back 23 years and, and considering the, how close or how new the church actually is and how you still have Old Testament believers alive that... The, the apostles were constantly encountering these folks, okay? And this is where, um, I'll go ahead and make my side trip here in, uh, in Acts uh, 19. And it takes place at Ephesus, of all places, okay? I don't think this is a coincidence. So at the end of chapter 18, uh, as Paul is leaving, uh, yeah, He's leaving uh, Corinth. He'd been at Corinth for a while, and now he's going to, uh, on this third missionary journey, he's going to set up in, uh, in, in Ephesus. Um, they encounter a Jew there by the name of Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. So he's not a slug. And he's not, uh, he's not, he's not dumb. He's just, there's information he's not aware of. The men had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So again, he's ignorant of, of later information, things that he was not privy to. He began speaking out boldly the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately information that he needed to add to the knowledge he already had, all right? Because he's approaching this as an Old Testament believer. He's approaching this with Hebrew canon of, of Scripture, and he's approaching it with the, the latest information he had was the ministry of John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist saying? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Uh, I suspect they got him a little bit adjusted so that he realized it's not as at hand as it used to be, okay? That the kingdom has been delayed and, uh, and that uh, the, the Christ departed and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that a new stewardship is now in this world with the Holy Spirit having been sent. And so uh, these things have to happen. I think you cross now to chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, and found some disciples. And thankfully, they're there. There are some disciples there. But they are uh, still the, the product of what Apollos had produced while he was there with the incomplete information. 
And so, you know, you come in, you step into a new ministry, and somebody else has, has already taught them something, and it's not quite accurate, now you've got to fix it. And so he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Okay. So, again, you're dealing with believers, and this is not possible today. Today, when somebody gets saved, they receive the Holy Spirit. It happens at the very moment you're born again. That every born-again believer in Jesus Christ is baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ, and that happens the very moment of your salvation. It's not possible uh, to be a crossover 2,000 years after the dispensation of the church began. But back then it was very possible. And they were constantly encountering Old Testament believers that had not yet been brought into the church. And they said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? So he said, well, what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Oh, you're still dealing with that kingdom of heaven is at hand thing, and you've got to get updated here. They, the Jews rejected their Messiah. They crucified him. He died. He rose again on the third day. He ascended. He is now seated at the Father's right hand. John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And so this passage is, is very illustrative of what I'm talking about, that in the first century, in the early church, that not only did they have evangelists that would go out to give the gospel to unbelievers that, that needed to be born again to receive eternal life, but they also had apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, and it was another target audience that was out there to go find some Old Testament believers. A lot of times they were Jews or they were God-fearing Gentiles. And they had a, an Old Testament framework, like Cornelius in Acts 10, so many more examples, and, uh, and then update them as to what has transpired dispensationally, that the steward, that the covenant nation of Israel no longer exercises stewardship duties in this world, that they have been set aside for the moment, not forever, but for this time, they have been set aside while God works out a program for his heavenly people. So uh, Paul gives this information, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and they're all about 12 men. That's kind of exciting, because think of what the Lord can do with 12 men, right? So in any event, these crossovers and the reality of the newness of the church age, I think... Uh, that is worth keeping in our minds as we work our way through Ephesians 2.11. Because we're, we're trying to lock down what was the then, the formerly, right? The formerly or the then, the, the, the Greek particle here, the pata, the then, once upon a time, okay? It's not the same as we had in verses 1 through 10. Because that then was you were unbelievers, Okay, and, and that's a, a generic then. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Christ. That was that then. This then is a different then. And this then is a then that applies to all of them collectively. I would again point out that the you of verse 11 is described as a corporate body. It's described as a collectively identifiable people group called Gentiles according to the flesh. Remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh. That's the you that we're dealing with here. So this is not a salvific contrast. This is a dispensational contrast of a that and then uh, juxtaposition. And that's what we're, we'll see here moving forward. So, a Jew-Gentile contrast in the glorious new man reality in Christ Jesus. The imperative to remember, I'm not going to repeat that, but mnemon yuo is the verb, and uh, the imperative that we have, there's a lot of things we're commanded to remember, like remember Lot's wife, for example. There's other verses where we're commanded to remember, to remember my imprisonment, to remember the prisoners. Um, a lot of things we're commanded to remember, remember the prisoners, to uh, remember um, those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. I have several uh, remember passages. All right. Formerly. Remember that formerly. 
Is this connected to the formerly walked in and formerly lived? It is not. It is not. It is unrelated to being a believer or being an unbeliever. It has no connection to you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power. Okay, it's a different back then. And then really, this shouldn't be hard. This shouldn't be, we do the same thing in our experiences, right? I can contrast before and after, you know, before and after, before, um, before I was a married man and, and talk about my bachelor days or before I was a pastor or before, uh, you know, before I was in the army. We, we have a lot of things we can, we can talk about in a before and after contrast and they're not identical. There could be some overlap, but they're not identical. So formerly, you the Gentiles. This is an entirely different contrast than we had in verses 2 and 3. Another clue, Gentiles in the flesh. It's almost a nonsensical. What other kind of Gentiles are there besides Gentiles in the flesh? Okay? In fact, the, very, the, the elements of Jew and Gentile are, by definition, they are human, mortal, physical requirement issues. The, the, the dispensation of Israel held their stewardship based upon laws of physical requirements. That's why Jesus couldn't be a priest in, in, as, as a Jew, because he was from the wrong tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. So why is he called a high priest? Because it's a different priesthood. And the priesthood that he holds, his high priesthood in Melchizedek, is not based upon physical requirements, but it's grounded in an indestructible life, as the book of Hebrews describes it, and praise God for that. But... It's not nonsensical. It is there for a reason because the entire uh, context here of 11 and 12, the, the setting for these verses is being grounded uh, repeatedly in a physical requirement uh, realm. And so we see that there are Gentiles in the flesh. The, the circumc circumcision is in the flesh. Uh, even the circumcision that they receive on the eighth day of life is performed in the flesh by human hands. All right? And it's a physical reality. That doesn't change, at least it didn't before Pentecost, doesn't change anything for any Gentile unbeliever who gets saved. And so when we look at these exclusions, we took a look at these Gentile disadvantages, being excluded, uh, being separate from Christ. Separate from Christ. No Gentile could claim uh, the, a promise of a Christ. Only the Jews. The only Christ God would send into the world, the only Messiah, the only Mashiach he would ever send into the world is a Hebrew Mashiach. That the Messiah is from Israel according to the flesh. So these Greeks, these Romans, these Lydians, these uh, whatever uh, ethnicities that they had here in, in Ephesus, um, their ethnicities, their people groups didn't have a Christ. Because there's only one, and he's a Jew. So they were without Christ. And, and let's say somebody got saved. When Uriah the Hittite got saved, or when Job got saved, or when, when uh, pick, pick your favorite Gentile unbeliever from the Old Testament. When they got saved, they still didn't have a Christ. They had a Savior. But they didn't have the Messiah promises that Israel was given for the coming of Mashiach. Okay? And so saved or lost, as Gentiles, they didn't have a Christ. Likewise, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They weren't just granted Jewish citizenship because they got born again as a Gentile believer. You know, the, uh, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. How do you think the Father classifies all the Gentiles that are born again in, in his house? What is their eternal destiny like? What is their eternal estate like? All right, it's not Israel's. They have their own. Then uh, strangers to the covenants of promise. Does that change? When a Gentile unbeliever becomes a Gentile believer in the Old Testament? Again, uh, I, I use Uriah the Hittite a lot, or I, or I use uh, uh, Job. You could use, any, you could use Enoch. You can use any Gentile. Uh, use uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, high priest of Midian. Okay? 
He was separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. When a Gentile got saved, before the church age now, when a Gentile got saved, they weren't just brushed into Israel's inheritance and said, okay, you're cool now, you can, you can have a part in the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, or any of that. You are a born-again, believing Gentile. See, and, and it's worth taking the time to think these things through because if you don't think things through, then we just have it in our mind that the way it is now is the way it's always been. And that's not the case. The way it is now, whether you were Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. You're now a heavenly citizen in Christ. That didn't happen before Pentecost of 33 AD. It okay? didn't happen before the church age. Still, having no hope without God in the world. This is a description of the, uh, the estate of Gentile humanity prior to the church age. But now, in Christ Jesus. So that was then, this is now. That's not a salvific contrast. That is a dispensational contrast. We can now say, but now that the church age has begun, now that the new stewardship is, is functioning in this world, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay? This is the mechanism that makes it possible. This is how it happens. So, I hope we can, uh, we can see this. He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. So Gentiles aren't Gentiles anymore, and Jews aren't Jews anymore. When they become born again, they are now made into one new man. Made both groups into one. See, and I, and I want to stress also the both. I want to stress the both. Because it's, it's a flawed approach that says, oh, well, the Gentiles, God just kind of credits them as if they are Jews. And he brings them in under the Jewish blessings. This passage says he doesn't bring them under the covenants or the, or the, the uh, other Jewish particulars, the commonwealth of Israel, the polity of Israel. And the barrier of the dividing wall is not between sinners and God. The barrier of the dividing wall is between Jews and Gentiles. And the enmity is not the enmity between unbelievers and God. It's the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. Notice, one new man. I'm gonna try, I, I think I've made that bold enough. I put enough an emphasis in there with, with a highlight, with a bold, with an all caps, with a yellow box, and an exclamation point at the end. Okay? It's a positional truth reality of in Christ, and we are one new man. Christ is the head, we're the body. We have one new man in Christ. Something that never existed before that he might reconcile them both. Okay? Because both have to be reconciled, Jew and Gentile alike. I think it's, it's a very flawed approach. We dealt with this in Romans when some people have a, a problematic understanding of the branches that are broken off and the branches that are grafted in and then the broken off branches that are regrafted in. Uh, the tree is not Israel, let's be clear. Okay? It's to become a partaker of the rich root of the fatness. Anyway. We don't become Jews when we get saved. Gentiles and Jews together become church, royal family of God. It's a much better, much higher, much more spiritual polity than the polity of uh, the commonwealth of Israel. He came and he preached both. Peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Both have to be preached to to enter into the body of Christ. We'll get to the so then. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. I think this gets misread as well, based upon all the other misreading that leads up to this. Once you start down the wrong path, it's kind of like a snowball avalanche. It's just the, the wrong approach just builds and builds and builds and builds. Oh, we're no longer strangers and aliens? Does this mean now that we're part of Israel? What, what, what tribe do we get put into? What's our land grant? What's our... Yeah, do we got to start getting circumcised and follow the, uh, the liturgical calendar? What are we supposed to do here? None of that. Because we're not under the polity of Israel. Notice, we are of God's household. Isn't that beautiful? That's why we call ourselves the royal family of God. The, the ruling family of Israel was the house of David. That's not our house. We're the house of Jesus Christ, the house of God. It's a heavenly citizenship. 
So, we'll, uh, we've got a lot to cover in these verses, and I hope uh, our understanding gets broadened to understand this. All right, Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the circumcision. Now, this name-calling, that what happens here, who calls them that? Who calls them uncircumcision? Well, the verse tells us it's the circumcision that calls them uncircumcision. The name-calling is done by the circumcision. The Gentiles don't call themselves that. Okay? Why not just call them Gentiles? That's what they are. Are they uncircumcised? Sure. Well, why is that pejorative? Why is that an insult? Why is that um, problematic? If God didn't design them to be circumcised, if God designed Israel to be circumcised, fine. That's his provision. It would be like um, insulting men by calling them uh, non-childbearing. And just insulting every man because you've never carried a baby. You've never delivered a child. Um, okay. And I, and I personally would not be insulted at all. I'd just kind of laugh at you and say, no, I'm glad I didn't, right? I, I saw four times my wife gave birth, and all four times I said, I'm glad that's not me. That is just painful. But to use a circumcision status that, that the Jews had, and honestly, you can't boast in it because your parents did it to you when you were eight days old. It's not like you voluntarily... Uh, circumcised yourself, but, um, you know, and, and what memories did you have of that anyway? So it's just kind of a, a lifelong thing that you, ha you know, that you have, and, and then you start getting prideful about it? Like, like the earthly ritual, what's the reality? And is the reality designed for boasting? Is the reality designed for name-calling? Is the reality designed so that you could view others as being inferior? Is that why? The ritual of circumcision was given to the Jewish people? Of course not. So the name-calling is curious. The, um, and it's another bit of the evidence also that helps us to recognize that this formerly not now discourse is dispensational rather than salvific. We're not dealing in salvific terms. We're dealing in dispensational terms. We're dealing in contrasts of people groups and how God considers the people groups. And one of the best things we can possibly start doing is, um, is, is absorb ourselves in a biblical anthropology so that we can discard all of the remnants of whatever uh, university secular anthropology we've, we've been saddled with, okay? Some of the horrible anthropology that's out there that's evolutionary and, and anti-biblical and racist and everything else under the sun. So we must have a biblical anthropology that divides all of humanity into Jew and Gentile, and then observes how God invents something that is neither, with a new creation in Christ. That's the glories of what we have the blessings of looking at here. All right. By the called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. All right. I, I want to cross off the S-O part of so-called. And as soon as I can figure out a way to do that... The called and the so-called. I want to find a way to translate the expressions so that they are obviously identical. Because in the Greek they are. We have, a, we have present participles, we have participles of kaleo, passive participles. So whatever we do with the, those who are called uncircumcision, it's those who are called circumcision. Not so-called, but those who are called circumcision. That's what they're called, and they're the ones doing the name-calling. So, by the called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. And the vocabulary is pretty easy. I didn't, is it paratome for circumcision? Um, I didn't list the vocabulary for uncircumcision. Acrabustia, if you want to write that one down. Acrabustia. I'll even find a Strong's number for you. Since I failed to, uh, 203, I failed to uh, put that in the notes. Acrobustia. And, and, and it's, this is a contrast. I think Emilio spotted this last week or somebody else was asking me about this. It's not just simply the idea of taking the adjective for circumcised, slapping an A in front of it, and having uh, the reverse, the opposite. Okay? It's not as simple as that. In fact, it's a term 
that is, uh, the, the, the origin of this is remarkable in its secular use and then in its Jewish biblical use. But I'll save that for another day. But the, the ones calling themselves circumcision, okay, and out of all the features of the Abrahamic covenant, when you have land, seed, and blessing, and you have all of the other requirements of the law, everything else that you're keeping, everything else that you're doing with your Levitical priesthood, with your burnt offerings, I mean, just to take all of all things Jewish and then to use circumcision as the label that you're going to use to look down on those Gentiles, it's, it's curious. It also seems rather sexist because what do the women have in this when they're, when they're <laughs> calling out the uncircumcision? I don't know. Another piece of evidence in this passage, that there's another detail, fixing the formerly not now discourse in dispensational rather than salvific terms. Okay? Because, salve, because circumcision is irrelevant when it comes to salvation. And part of the battles they had to fight was all those legalistic, Jew, uh, Judaistic, uh, Jewish background Christians were insisting that the Gentiles had to get circumcised when they got saved. And Paul and James and John and all the, they got together in Acts 15 and they said, no, no, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. There's no point in that. So, note the divergent usage of circumcision and uncircumcision. Of all the things that are parallel, this is worth a side trip to Colossians because uh, we, we studied Colossians a couple years ago before the Through the Bible year. We did Colossians. We, we, co we commented repeatedly that these are sister books, right? But they're not identical twins. They are, uh, they are sisters, no question. And there is a lot of overlap. There's a, there's a significant amount of Ephesians is uh, repeated from Colossians, but not this. This is where there is a very divergent usage. In Colossians, we had a circumcision of Christ doctrine, and it was a very valuable doctrine to look at. But that's not what this passage is dealing with. And that, too, I think, is very useful for us to consider. So let's take one short look here at Colossians 2. And we're looking at verses 11 through 13 with... Yeah, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, okay? But, and also, I'm reminding myself that I need to come through and put the little red exclamation points in here that, uh, that I did for Ephesians, so you can see all the in Christ statements. The stability of your faith in Christ. All right, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. It's a great reminder. You were saved by grace through faith. You better be walking by grace through faith. The, the way that you received Him is the way you should be walking in Him. Uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. I tell you, we, we are more vulnerable to this than ever before. You would think after 20 centuries or in down into the 21st century that the church would be better. At, no, we are far more vulnerable than ever. Every whim of humanity comes along. Philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, the stoicheia of this cosmos are as alive today as they've ever been. The idolatry that goes on, maybe we're not bowing down to statues, but it's far worse today. I'll tell you that. For in Him, put a red exclamation point there, in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You might recall, in Him, His positional truth in Christ, the fullness, who's the fullness? The church. The body and bride of Christ is the fullness. And how do we dwell? We dwell bodily because he's the head, we're the body. Take body of Christ and make an adverb out of it and we, uh, we dwell that way. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all, rule of, and authority. And in him... In him, all right, put a red exclamation point there too. It's a positional truth doctrine that applies to all of us at the moment of our salvation. You are also circumcised. Do you remember that? Okay. You know, a, a Jewish boy doesn't remember it when he was eight days old. I mean, what memories do you have of that? But for you and I, the moment of our salvation, likely, uh, you, you have 
memory. You have a recollection. If, if in fact, there was a specific point of time that you can point to, unless you were really young or it came gradually and you're not exactly sure if you can pinpoint the, the day and the hour, that's fine. But um, I remember my mom sitting me down at the dining room table and walking me through First John 5 and describing the fact that, that, that she and my father had eternal life and I didn't. And I thought, oh, I, that's, that's bad, right? Because sinners go to hell and I didn't want to go to hell. I, I knew I was a sinner. I remember that day of getting saved. And when that happened, I was circumcised. I don't have any memory of that because it's a doctrine I learned later. It wasn't a physical circumcision. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Aha. So now, and we taught this, we taught this at great length, to contrast the Jewish ritual, which is physical, with hands in the physical flesh, and now with the spiritual circumcision in Christ. Okay? And it's not a, it's not a, well, it is a foreskin, but it is a, it is a spiritual aspect related to our sin nature in Adam, okay? Circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so this is a, this is a beautiful doctrine, okay? The doctrine of the circumcision of Christ, the doctrine of the spiritual circumcision made without hands. And then the way to contrast, again, that what we have as church-age believer priests in, in a very unique way. This, this never happened before the church age. Where we have uh, the identification through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then he launches into something very parallel to Ephesians 2.1. You were dead, but not in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So it continues to use that spiritual uncircumcision language. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Isn't that beautiful? That's why we go to the judgment seat of Christ instead of the great white throne. Because our debt certificate has canceled out. We have no more pending indictments before the great white throne. Uh, we, and, and so we're remanded to a better court. We're remanded to the, the judgment seat of Christ. And by the way, we don't get there with any kind of pass-fail, uh, glad you're here kind of a thing. The fact that we're there is because we are born again in Christ. We wouldn't even be on that docket if we weren't already uh, born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So he canceled it. It was hostile to us. He's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Are we clear on the metaphor? Are we okay with this as a metaphor? It wasn't physically nailed to the physical cross. It was only Jesus, and it was only the thing that the Romans put up there with the plaque over his head. Okay, But metaphorically, the reality is this certificate of debt, that's where he judicially removed it. That's where he dealt with it. And the Father judiciously dealt with it. There's a lot of work happening on that cross, more than we give it credit for. Okay? How many things was he accomplishing in the uh, six hours that he was hanging there? So, this was a wonderful doctrine. I'm not going to take the time this morning, but I would encourage you, go get a Colossians notebook. Listen to these classes. Review what this doctrine's all about. It's not the same that we're looking at now in Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? It is not the same development we're looking at here with the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Okay? We're going back now to Ephesians 2.11. Note the divergent usage of circumcision slash uncircumcision and the, the circumcision of Christ doctrine taught in Colossians. Yes, he used the same vocabulary. And yes, he used, he used there a contrast between earthly and spiritual circumcision. That's not what he's dealing with here. In fact, after the name-calling, he doesn't even bring up uncircumcision again. Okay? The pejorative use of uncircumcised has a long customary usage, and yet it is entirely inappropriate. 
and when we look at the long customary usage and we see other people using it, okay? Some of my favorite passages, by the way. I love it when, when uh, 12-year-old David's talking to King Saul and he says, I'm going I'm to deal with that uncircumcised Philistine, okay? Do we take that as a pejorative use of the adjective uncircumcised? I think so. Is it the same as it's being used here in a pejorative sense? I would suspect not. I would suspect not. Okay? And, and maybe as we look at these, we'll, we'll tell some of the differences. So let's start with Judges 14. Judges, what do you think of when you think of Judges 14? First thing. Come on. Every chapter, okay? Every chapter of the Bible. If you've gone through, through the Bible, every chapter should just jump out at it and you should know. All right. Anyway, this is in the Samson portion of Judges. And um, Samson goes down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. All right, so he's in Timnah, and uh, he saw a woman, right? They have them there. And he likes what he sees. So he came back, and he told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. All right? They did that back then. And his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? And, and understand that um, it wasn't commanded, but it was expected that the Jewish people identified as the Jewish people. That they, you know, even Moses caught grief for his, his foreign wife. Okay? It, it was never a, a command. It was never a prohibition. But by virtue of the fact that the inheritance had to be passed down by tribe, by clan, by family, by house, uh, putting Gentile elements into that mix was, was not viewed uh, favorably. So is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, I think his mother and father are saved. I think they are positive to doctrine. Um, I have a favorable view of his parents based upon everything we have here in Judges related to them. I, I don't knock them as being arrogant or boastful. But they are using the pejorative, or they are using the adjective uncircumcised. But I, I'm not viewing this the same as, a, as an insult. And I'm certainly not viewing them as being prideful or superior but still, it is a note. It is a note that this is an, a, uh, a mixed marriage between Jews and, and the uncircumcised. So Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. <laughs> so if physical beauty is the sole criteria for why you are proposing marriage, that is, uh, that's bad, okay? All right. It should not be the sole criteria. In fact, you should identify the inner beauty is what you're looking for. And you should identify a born-again believer, a girl that loves the Lord, a girl that's growing in the Word of God. Okay? And then, only then, you can say, okay, and plus the, the physical beauty is just icing on the cake. Right? Say, thank you, Lord. Related to that. So, Judges 14.3. In the next chapter, Judges 15.18, he became very thirsty. This is still Samson. And he called to the Lord. Yeah, he gets through with the battle here. He's got the jawbone of a donkey and goes and kills a thousand men with it. So how tired and thirsty do you get after killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a, of a, dog, of a donkey? And uh, so he threw the jawbone from his hand. He named that place Ramath-Lehi. He became very thirsty and he called to the Lord. And he said, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now... Shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Again, I've got to ask myself, what's with the name calling? And, um, okay, you killed a bunch of them. Did you give the gospel to any of them? You know, if you're the covenant nation, and don't you want to, uh, I mean, think about Abraham and, and uh, the king of Gerar. Think about the fellowship that they could have in, in friendly terms. He was a Philistine. Anyway, but God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so water came out of it, and he drank, and his strength returned, and he revived. So he named it En Hakore, which is in Lehi, 
to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So there's a couple of pejorative uses. Here's King David in 1 Samuel 14. Oh, no, even before David. The, uh, here's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So it's kind of common. It's a common nickname by this time. And the period of Judges, you know, you're talking about 400 years in between. It's one of the mysteries of Old Testament chronology, but to try to fit all of the Judges in, in the years that we're told that they reigned, and to put all that in before uh, the 40-year reign of Saul, the 40-year reign of David, and then uh, pegging the, the fourth year of Solomon in 971. So a lot of that is, is a little bit of, uh, of some homework you've got to do on your Old Testament chronology. Um, but obviously from Samson to, to uh, Jonathan now and David, uh, some time has passed. And it looks like this, uh, this pejorative has caught on. Okay? And, and it's caused me to think too about how do, how do I refer to people when I'm referring to unbelievers. Okay? Do I, is, is that the most common name? Do I call them unbelievers? Do I call them heathens? Do I call them pagans? I mean, there's, there's options open to me, but I suspect I kind of want to be kinder, gracious. I, you know, especially if I come face to face with one of those heathens, I want them to accept Christ for eternal life. And so uh, maybe calling them uncircumcised Philistines was not conducive to a grace approach of the Jewish stewardship in the Old Testament. So, uh, but there's Jonathan making use of it. And his armor bearer said, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. You know, he's willing to go die. He's going to cross over with Jonathan and just the two of them against the world, right? So uh, a lot of faith there. And, and I see this faith, and I know that Jonathan's a believer. I know he's godly. I know that he, his soul resonates with David's soul. They had a love for, for doctrine. They had a love for the Word of God. And so... I'm leaning towards understanding that the label does not have to be insulting if, in fact, what you're doing is you're recognizing the blessing that we have as opposed to viewing it on any kind of superior basis. I guess that's what I'm saying. All right. So that's Jonathan. Here's David. And this is the First Samuel 17. What do you think of First Samuel 17? David and Goliath, right off the bat. You don't even blink an eye. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Okay? You should have a, a title for every chapter. I think you're way through 1 Samuel. So David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Again, it's pejorative, he's, he's calling names here, but he's, he's incensed, he's, he's angry, he's, it offends him to hear the blasphemy against the living God, to hear all the cursing, to hear all of the, the uh, and this has been going on for days, days and days, he's been defying them. I don't want to read the whole chapter there, but for days and days he's been defying them, and nobody's been standing up, nobody's been accepting the challenge. And so the longer they, they dither in their unbelief, King Saul and all of his soldiers, every day that they dither in faithlessness is another day for the name of the Lord to be disparaged, another day for the, the uncircumcised Philistine to keep blaspheming. And how many days has this been? And so on the first day David hears of it, he says, well, that's long enough. Let's stop this today. How old is he here? 10, 12, I'm guessing. So, this uncircumcised Philistine. And he finds out, yeah, there's quite a reward here. And you can marry the king's daughter. And there's a lot of money that goes with that. And it's, uh, his brothers are all upset. Who do you think you are? And I think the brothers not only were jealous, they knew that he could go kill that, that giant, don't you think? I'm convinced. They knew the lion and bear stories. They knew what their brother was capable of. They knew that they'd been passed over by Samuel the prophet when David got anointed. 
I don't, I don't think they had a doubt in their mind that he was going to go kill that Philistine, and they, they weren't in favor of that. So he comes and he testifies to Saul, and Saul says, you can't do this, you're too young, right? Let no one despise thy youth. If God has called you and this is your ministry, then go do it. So you're a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. But then he tells this story. Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. And I went out after him. So lion or bear, he's done both. Took a lamb from the flock. I think he was more scared of facing Jesse and telling his dad, I, I lost a lamb. Okay? Which would you rather do? Stand in front of Jesse and admit you lost a lamb or go fight that lion and get the, get the lamb back? Okay? If Jesse was anything like my dad, I'd, I'd go fight the bear. All right? I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. So this is up close and personal. He rose up against me. I seized him by the beard. I struck him and killed him. It wasn't with a, a bow and arrow. It wasn't with a sling. You know, a lucky shot with a stone and a sling. He seized him by the beard and struck him. This is up close and personal. The business end of a knife. Okay? Grabbing the lion by the beard. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. The spirit-anointed prophet, that is David, has no fear related to, no matter how tall Goliath is. Okay? Nine foot six, or there, there's Septuagint uh, readings there too that are manuscript puzzles. All right. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. It's a long customary usage of possibly pejorative, possibly not. By the time we get to Ephesians, it definitely is. There is no question about called uncircumcision by the circumcision. That mark of, uh, of pride. First uh, Samuel 31.4, Saul says to his armor bearer, this is when he dies, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But the armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And good for the armor bearer, because you can't, you can't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed, even if he tells you to do it. So a pejorative use there. Second Samuel 1.20. This is David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching the song of the bow. It's a, it's a composition of David's that does not get put into the book of Psalms, but it is recorded here. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. You know, it's how a news event can be told by different sides. Okay, and, and you want, when the Jerusalem Post publishes this in Jerusalem, they want to celebrate, they want to sing, it's a happy news. But when the uh, when the... Gath uh, Gazette puts their news out in the morning. Um, you know, that's, they don't want to, you don't want the uncircumcised celebrating, is what he's saying here. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields or offerings. You talk about a curse. Just because that's where Saul died, I'm going to turn off the rain. For how long? For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Mm. From the blood of the slain, from the fall of the mighty, the fat of the mighty, excuse me, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life. What a funeral, what a eulogy here. Beloved and pleasant in their life. And in their death, they were not parted. Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. This is a beautiful song. It bugs me to death with how this gets perverted. The homosexuals try to claim horrible things there. And anyway, it's a beautiful psalm. 
Okay? And the death of Saul, say what you will, he died the sinner to death, and the end of his life was awful, but his early years were better. He was a believer. He walked by faith. He was among the prophets. He just, like, like Solomon, terrible end, and died the sinner to death. All right, we'll pick up here, uh, Wayne's Deke. We've got to get through more of these pejorative usages, and then I want to show why it's inappropriate. Why, why was it wrong for the circumcised to boast in their circumcision? You, sh- you shouldn't be prideful over what God has given you, as if somehow you earned it or deserved it. That's not how grace works. Now, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for truth. I pray that you continue to bless our studies. Father, we want to know more about Ephesians. We want to know more about you as, uh, as we learn these doctrines. So continue to shape us, continue to nourish us as we feed upon your truth. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.